0: Welcome to the Strange Matters Podcast. Here at Strange Matters, we discuss everything and anything that is just outside the norm. I am Sean, and I will be the host for this discussion. In this episode, we will be discussing one of the darkest and most disturbing crimes we have ever covered so far in this podcast. These series of murders would claim the lives of five young men, leaving a dark hole in the lives of their families and spreading fear through the community. What makes this story even more disturbing is the implication that these five deaths, as horrendous as they were, are just the tip of the iceberg. There are many who believe that the cases I will be discussing in this episode are not the only ones, just the ones that we know about. This discussion will involve brutal attacks, unsolved murders, but perhaps most disturbingly of all, a potential conspiracy that could be involved with dozens and perhaps even hundreds of other victims. I want to give a warning to our listeners that the content in this discussion may upset or disturb you. I know it certainly had an effect on me. With all that said, in this episode I will be talking about the family murders of Adelaide, Australia. Before we begin, I would like to thank our listener Natasha for writing us in and suggesting this topic to us. The family murders was the name given to a series of abductions, tortures, and murders in Adelaide the capital city of South Australia. Adelaide has the unsavory reputation of being dubbed Australia's murder capital. These attacks, known as the family murders, occurred through the late 1970s and into the mid-80s. The family itself was a term used for the proposed secret group of high-profile men that formed an underground circle of crime which involved kidnapping young men, drugging and torturing them, and sometimes brutally killing them. Now, who was actually involved with this so-called family is unknown to the public, as is the answer whether it actually exists at all. Whatever the case may be, there is no denying the fact that a series of murders in the area shared some striking similarities, heavily suggesting that the same person or group was behind these attacks. Now, before we get too deep into the conspiracy of this disturbing crime, we will start from the beginning with the background of the known deaths that are attributed to these murders. Alan Barnes was a 16-year-old young man. Alan lived with his family in one of Adelaide's northern suburbs. He was known to be humorous and had a quick wit. On Sunday, June 17th of 1979, Alan left a friend's house, telling him he was going to hitchhike his way home. Unfortunately, his departure marked the last time his friends or family would ever see him alive. Instead of arriving home later on that Sunday as planned, Alan's whereabouts were unknown. His parents obviously became worried as the night went on, and Alan still did not appear back at home. On Monday morning, after there was still no sign of him, his mother contacted the police and filled them in, saying this was very unusual for her son not to come home without getting in touch somehow. The police asked around on the usual route that Allen would take home. Perhaps someone had seen something that would stand out as a reason why he went missing. According to one witness, Alan was seen being picked up by a vehicle as he tried to hitchhike down the road, getting into a white sedan car that already contained three or four people. That car then drove off, but unfortunately Alan would not be returning home that night as planned. The local police was on the case, but... As the days went on and there was still no sign of Allen, they found themselves at a dead end. The thing is that law enforcement really had absolutely nothing to go on. There were no leads, no evidence left behind, no ransom note or contact of any kind by some would-be kidnapper. Allen was just simply missing. The Barnes held hope that their boy was fine somewhere, and he would come home, or at least someone would find where he was. Exactly one week after his untimely disappearance... Alan Barnes was finally found. Unfortunately for his family, friends, and the police who had been looking for him, Alan would not be found alive. Seven days after his abduction, two men traveling along a dirt road discovered the contorted body of a young man under a bridge. When this news was put on the TV later, Alan's mother instinctively knew that this unidentified corpse was that of her son's. She contacted the media and police and told them her feelings, and told him to check for a special engraving on the back of the watch. Sure enough, soon after this, the police and doctors identified this body as belonging to Alan Barnes. Those that had found Alan's body saw that he had been viciously beaten and mutilated. Despite the vicious attacks and obvious wounds, Alan had been washed thoroughly and dressed in new clothes. Post-mortem exams were performed. And soon, terrible details were discovered of the horrendous acts that Allen had suffered through in his long days of captivity. Allen's body showed signs that he had been beaten brutally. He also had wounds showing that he had been cut multiple times. Other clues were found by the doctors that he had been tortured over and over again. Perhaps most disturbingly of all, Allen's body showed signs of sexual abuse as well. In fact, though he suffered from many, many wounds and injuries... It was ultimately declared that he had finally died of blood loss from an anal injury caused by a blunt object. It is believed that Allen was alive for six days before finally dying, with his captors leaving his body to be found on the seventh day. Blood tests were also done on Allen, and it was found that he had in fact been drugged. The police believe that whoever had abducted him may have given him a drink laced with a sedative and hypnotic drug called Noctec. In general, young, healthy males do not really make an easy target for kidnappers, or criminals in general. So the logic would go that those responsible for his death had drugged Alan all along in order to subdue him for an easy capture, and then by keeping him sedated during his captivity, his tormentors were able to have their will with Alan without fear of him escaping or fighting back. As horrible as this crime was, what made it even worse was that the police really had no idea who was responsible or why they did this. There were no noteworthy clues or evidence found at the scene of the body, and the Barnes' family could think of no one who'd want to hurt their boy. For now, the police could only theorize that it was perhaps a random hit by just some psychopath with perverse and violent desires. Unfortunately for those in the Adelaide area, Alan Barnes would not be the only victim, but instead simply the first. Neil Muir was a 25-year-old man who, under similar mysterious circumstances, went missing just a short while after Alan Barnes. Just like Alan, the search for him turned out empty-handed. It appeared that he had simply vanished. Now, Neil had apparently had some drug problems, so the early thought was that perhaps his disappearance was somehow related to his drug use. As it would turn out, though, a much worse fate was in store for this young man. Several men who were fishing in the Port River discovered a pair of unusual garbage bags. After retrieving them out of the water, the curious men decided to look inside. Now I can say with almost certainty that this would be one of the most regrettable decisions that these men would ever make. What they found inside the garbage bags were absolutely horrific. And once again, I would like to give a warning that the following description of the crimes is quite disturbing. I can say that I had to take several mental breaks during researching this case just to clear my head. Inside the garbage bags, the body of Neil Muir was found. His body had been surgically dissected and dismembered into 43 separate pieces. The head had been severed from the body, and it was tied crudely to the chest with a rope that ran through the open mouth and out of the wound in the neck. All of his limbs had been removed from the torso, along with being skinned. His internal organs had been ripped out and placed in a plastic bag. His severed legs, along with the bag of organs, was then stuffed back into the hollowed-out chest cavity. What was left of his body was then jammed into this garbage bag and taken for disposal. After looking further into this just brutal crime the police did begin to see several similarities between Neal's death and that of Alan Barnes two months prior. Both victims had been drugged before their death. Their bodies had been dumped close to water areas. And both died of blood loss due to anal injuries. Following this murder, an anonymous tip was called into the police, suggesting that they look into a man named Bevan Spencer Von Einem. The caller said that this man may be responsible for Alan Barnes' death, Several other witness statements claimed to have seen Bevan with Allen at the time of his disappearance, but unfortunately no real evidence could be found. Bevan was let go, for now, as a suspect, as the police had hundreds of other leads to follow up on instead. But this man would soon come back into this case in a much larger role. Several years later, 18-year-old Mark Langley was celebrating a friend's birthday party with his family. His family was leaving the party early, but letting Mark stay for a while longer. This would unfortunately be the last time that his family ever saw Mark. Mark was last seen in the early morning hours, walking towards a nearby river after having a small argument with his friends. Later that morning, Mark's father grew worried as he woke up and his son still hadn't come home. After waiting just a little while longer, the nervous Mr. Langley called the police and the search began for this missing teen. Nine days after he was reported missing, Mark Laneley's body would be found. Just as with the previous two, Mark's body was heavily mutilated. Strangely, in this case, his body had what looked like a fresh surgical scar running vertically down his abdomen, and a portion of his small intestine had been removed. The police believed that the killer did this to retrieve an object that had been inserted into Mark, likely because this object may have had the killer's fingerprints on it. Blood tests done showed that Mark was also drugged, as Quaalude was found in his system. Ultimately, Mark Langley would also die of massive internal bleeding. And just like Alan, he was found in a clean condition, with new clothes. About whoever was responsible for this crime, Mark Langley's father had this to say some years ago. Animals. No, an animal wouldn't do that. All these years, I've been trying to think of what to call them. You do not call them men, you do not call them people, and you do not call them animals. What do you call them? For 25 years, I could not think of a name to call them. What do I call these people? They're not even human. Peter Stognoff was a 14-year-old teenager. On his fateful day, Peter left his house just like every other morning, telling his mother goodbye and that he was heading towards school. Unbeknownst to her, Peter was actually planning on skipping school to go into the city to meet up with a friend. Somewhere between his home and getting into the city, however, Peter just vanished. For nearly a year, the police had nothing to go on. Peter's parents were left worrying about their son, hoping that no harm would come to him. His mother said that she waited every minute to hear from him the entire time he went missing. Ten months later, a local farmer was conducting a burn-off on his land. Afterwards, he would find the remains of a human skull and part of the burnt remains of a skeleton. Dental records were able to imply that these remains most likely belonged to 14-year-old Peter Stogniff. However, this could never be a 100% confirmed. Forensic exams showed that his spinal cord had been cut through and that his legs had been cut through with a saw above the knees. His cause of death could never be confirmed due to the age of the remains and the fact that they had suffered heavily from the accidental burning from the farmer. To this day, Peter's parents keep hope that perhaps this body was not of their son, and that Peter is still out there somewhere. Fifteen months came and went since the discovery of Peter's body. The police still had no solid leads into who was behind these murders. Beyond a few similarities, they don't even know for sure that these killings are actually linked together at all. The fear that was sweeping the community from these sudden and violent attacks slowly began to subside, as many thought that those dark days had passed. Unfortunately for Adelaide, whoever was responsible for these murders had not yet stopped, but had simply just taken a break. In July of 1983, the fear came back. Richard Kelvin was a 15-year-old young man living in North Adelaide. Richard's father was a well-known newscaster. On a Sunday afternoon, Richard was playing football at a park near his home with a couple of his friends. He was wearing a Channel 9 t-shirt, the same channel that his father was on. As a joke that day, Richard was wearing his dog's studded collar around his neck. As the sun began to set, Richard and his friends left the park. After walking several blocks, Richard said his farewell to his buddies and started to walk home. From this point towards his house, made up a distance of just 400 meters or about a quarter of a mile. Now at some point along this short route, something tragic occurred. What exactly happened after this is unknown, but what is known is that Richard would not arrive home that night, and in fact Richard would never be seen alive ever again. At this point, the lead investigators who were in charge of the case of the four murdered boys visited the Kelvin household, shortly after Richard went missing. It seemed clear to them that Richard had simply not run off, but was instead likely abducted, just like the other cases. Luckily, after asking around the neighbors, the police caught a break. Several witnesses claimed to have heard shouts from several people and the sound of car doors slamming shut, along with a car speeding off. All this occurred on the night of Richard's disappearance, around the same time that he was suspected of going missing. Unfortunately, beyond these statements... The police really had nothing else to fall through with. No one actually saw the car or what had happened. Seven weeks after his abduction, a startling and disturbing discovery was made. A man, along with his wife and children, were walking along Mount Crawford Forest. As this man was walking along a field, he noticed some animal bones, and as he moved closer to inspect that, he saw a person lying some distance away. Thinking that this person must be injured, he slowly walked over, asking if they were okay. Finally, when he got right up to the person, he pushed the bushes away, only to see with shock that this person, who was lying perfectly still, was wearing a Channel 9 t-shirt. This man walked off stunned, slowly going back to his family, where he informed his wife that he thinks that he had just found Richard Kelvin. Unlike several of the other boys, Richard was wearing the same clothes as the night he disappeared. Along with his signature Channel 9 shirt, he was still wearing the dog collar that he had put on for a few laughs. The police investigated and put out a timetable that states that Richard Body had likely been there for about two weeks, before it was discovered. At this point, five families had been torn apart by the violent losses of these young men. Their parents, siblings, and friends all remained shocked and mystified at these cruel slangs. No one could understand what possible motives anyone would have to hurting these boys. Now the police went into overdrive. There were already five bodies to account for, and law enforcement did not want to see that number go up anymore. Based on some leads, detectives investigated a subculture of pedophilia and sexual sadism among the city's network of homosexual activity. After an intense period of connecting evidence and statements from witnesses, along with tips from members of the community, the police were once again put on the trail of a certain man who had popped up quite early into this investigation. Through the course of investigating all the murders in great detail, the police were once again led to the 37-year-old accountant named Bevan Spencer von Einem. Bevan worked as an accountant while also living with his mother during the years that these murders took place. After the police had put together a solid case against the man, von Einem was finally arrested and charged with the murder of Richard Kelvin. He also remained the prime suspect in the murders of Muir, Stubnoff, and Barnes as well. During his trial, one of the witnesses testified against him, who was regarded as highly credible by the police due to his accurate information he had provided about von Einem and the killings. This witness related a conversation between himself and Bevan that implicated the man heavily in the murders. He went into great detail as to how Bevan von Einem had used surgical instruments to mutilate the bodies of these teenage victims before slicing them into pieces. With all the evidence put forth against him, along with all the damning testimonies of several key witnesses, in 1984, Bevan von Einem was found guilty of the murder of teenager Richard Kelvin, and was sentenced to life imprisonment. Afterwards, he was formally accused of the murder of Alan Barnes and Mark Langley as well, but the charges were dropped soon thereafter because of insufficient evidence. To this day, the cases of the murders of Alan Barnes, Mark Langley, Neil Muir, and Peter Stognoff remain officially unsolved. Von Einem was sentenced to a 36-year non-parole period, which at the time actually set a new record in South Australia for jail time. Since his conviction, Bevan has refused to claim responsibility for the murder of the other young men, or nominate anyone else that may have been involved in the deaths of the victims associated with the so-called family murders. Interestingly enough, years later in prison, Bevan von Einem would go on to allegedly admitting to the involvement and the disappearance of the Beaumont children, as well as the vanishing of Christy Gordon and Joanne Radcliffe. Von Einem boasted of having taken three children from the beach several years earlier before the family murders took place. These three kids were supposedly the Beaumont children, one of, if not the most well-known cold case from Australia known around the world. Bevan admits that he had taken these three kids home to conduct experiments on them. He said he had performed surgery on each of them and had connected them together. Bevan would go on to claim that one of the children had died during this sadistic procedure and how he later had no option but to murder the other two and dump all three of the bodies into the bushland south of Adelaide. Police had never considered von Einem in connection with the Beaumont children, but he did somewhat match the descriptions of the police sketches back in 1966. Also, Bevan was known to have visited the beach where these kids went missing multiple times. Von Einem also told an individual, who would later go on to testify against him, that he had taken two girls from the Adelaide Oval during a football match, These two kids were, allegedly, Christy Gordon and Joanne Radcliffe. This sudden abduction and disappearance of these two girls were another big mystery and well-known case from Adelaide. As for these girls, Bevan admits that he took them and murdered them, but that he did not perform any weird experiments or anything bizarre like that. While Bevan may have definitely been capable of carrying out these two murders, I have my doubts. Beyond his word and a few vague coincidences, there really aren't any connections or evidence that could link him to all three of these infamous Australian crimes. If he did do these, I would think that he would have tried to use this information as a bargaining chip during his sentence. Finally, the differences in M.O. between all these different crimes make it highly unlikely that the same person carried it out. In my opinion, I think Bevan von Einem, at this point, is just trying to boost his ego even more and just trying to gain more attention to himself. Doing this by claiming that he's responsible for all sorts of these brutal but popular crimes, all while behind bars. Now, while Bevan von Einem is, without a doubt, guilty of at least one murder, if not several more of the others, he was not the only suspect. At this point in the episode, we will be diving deeper into this case and discussing the investigation into the family. As the police were investigating the horrible murders of these five young men, the media began to speculate that the persons responsible were being protected by the family, a rumored network of elite businessmen, high-ranking doctors, powerful politicians, members of the police departments, and perhaps even some judges. Coming forward... Some witnesses began to claim of being fear for their lives and telling of a secret society of highly placed Adelaide professional men who preyed on boys and young men by drugging, raping, and sometimes even killing them. In 2008, detectives of major crime investigation carried out an exhaustive and thoroughly new look at the Allen Barnes and Peter Stoganoff cases in its entirety. They targeted the well-known Von Einem, of course, but also three other suspected key members of the group, along with eight minor but still-knowing associates. Putting together as much of the evidence and witness testimonies as they could gather, the police hoped to present a solid case. Unfortunately, in 2010, the Director of Public Prosecutions reviewed the reports and stated that there was still not enough evidence to charge von Einem or any of the other major players in these particular crimes. As of today... Bevan von Einem is the only suspected family member to face justice for any of the murders of these young men. Even that, only one of the five confirmed deaths most likely linked to the family have resulted in justice served. However, new evidence was found just shortly a while ago that could reveal additional information. A detailed diary was found that was kept by a man who supposedly had close ties to several key members of the family. As to the authenticity of this diary entries reveal name of three expected but as yet uncharged suspects and accomplices to the deaths of these young men the fact that this diary gives information about the family in all the cases that supposedly only the police investigators and the family members themselves would know gave law enforcement to believe that it might be legit Most importantly, the police were also able to find a few new leads and inquiries into this diary that they had not thought of before. Trevor Peters was the man who wrote this diary, and it was discovered by his brother shortly after Trevor died. Trevor lived right next to a known associate of von Einem, a transvestite who admitted to helping von Einem lure young males into his car. The entries dictate how Bevan von Einem took pictures of the first victim, Alan Barnes after he was sexually abused by the players of this sadistic organization. Trevor Peters, the writer of this diary, claims to have seen these photos when he was visiting the same hairdressing salon as Von Einem. According to Trevor, the hairdresser was a man named Dennis, a close friend and associate of Von Einem. Trevor wrote this in a diary entry, about this disturbing encounter in which Bevan Von Einem showed up one day while he was also there. He was in a very happy mood and looking knowingly at Dennis, smiling broadly and excited about something they both seemed to share. I was waiting for the bleach in my hair to work. Dennis and Von Einem went into a room into the rear of the salon behind a curtain. I could hear Bevan and Dennis giggling and laughing, both saying, Ooh, how evil, ooh, how evil. Dennis said this several times, and I became curious as to just what it was that they both found so interesting and entertaining. And feeling that I was being left out, got out of the chair to investigate. I found them huddled over a waist-high table directly behind the curtain. There was a group of photographs, Polaroids, laid out on the table, maybe four or five of them, with Bevan holding more photographs in his hand. They both began to collect the photos quickly, but not before I saw them. The photographs were of a young, attractive, blond haired man lying on his side, on the front seat of a car with his legs bent toward the steering wheel. I was shocked at seeing the photos, and they both hurriedly gathered them up, with Bevan putting them all into his back pocket of his trousers. When I asked who this young man was, Bevan said, "Oh, just some hitchhiker." Trevor would write that he later recognized the man in the photographs as Alan Barnes after seeing newspaper stories about his abduction. Also in the diary was an entry dated several weeks before the hairstylist Dennis died. This man had called Trevor from the hospital and asked him to visit before he passed away. For that visit, Trevor wrote, On one occasion we sat together in the garden at the hospital, and once again I asked him about the photographs. He told me that over the years that he had spent in Adelaide's Beats and Toilets, Bevan von Einem had shown him dozens of such photographs of nude young men, more often than not with objects, including bottles, inserted well into their anuses. However, he said, smiling at me, He didn't remember there being any photos at the salon ever, and if you know what's good for you, neither should you. Dennis would end up dying four days later. These disturbing remarks and this diary entry show that Von Einem could have had his hand in not just the five cases discussed earlier in this episode, but perhaps dozens and dozens more abductions and abuses of more young teenage men. Further info from this diary tells that Bevan von Einem and fellow suspected individuals Dennis the Hairstylist rented a storage unit where they would take abducted victims to torture and sexually abuse. Both von Einem and Dennis lived with their mothers, so in order to keep their sadistic lifestyles a secret, they had to have this extra unit. Several of the victims of the family murders showed signs of being kept alive for quite some time after they were kidnapped. The police suspect that it is a possibility that this storage unit was a holding cell for the abducted young men, in which the members of the family could visit and unleash their twisted desires. Trevor Peters wrote in his diary that he had spoken to a woman who lived near that unit, who said that she had seen several men enter the storage unit during the time that Richard Kelvin was missing. Trevor would suspect that this woman knew more, but was just too afraid to divulge any more information. Trevor Peters also had some other information on several more suspected members of the family. Trevor spoke to a woman named Prue, who shared a rented house with a transvestite man who was a suspect and close friend to Bevan von Einem. This person's identity could not be revealed to the public for legal reasons, but it is known that he was the brother of a former Australian Olympic athlete. Prue said that Bevan would often show up to their house with drugged young men to have sex with them. Another suspect, who is a profitable businessman whose identity is, again, not being leaked by the police, would also frequent the house on a near-daily basis to join in. After Von Einem's arrest, these two men would move away, and the police have been unable to track them down as of yet. To me, it seems likely that since the first victim, Ellen Barnes, was last seen getting into a vehicle with multiple people inside, that Bevan von Einem, along with these two accomplices, and perhaps even Dennis the Hairstylist, were all in that vehicle with the sole plan of abducting that young man. Police in South Australia are currently offering $13 million in rewards for information leading to an arrest or conviction in the murders of 18 children between 1966 and 2000. They have also made the unusual move of offering a reward for recovery of the children's bodies. This push includes the as-yet-unsolved cases of the other four teenage boys linked in the family murders. As it stands now, barring the discovery of some pieces of evidence, or perhaps the confession of another member of the so-called family, that it looks like there's a chance that these cases and more may go unsolved. As for the present, apparently this case is still very much fresh in the minds of the people of Adelaide, Natasha, who suggested this case to us, wrote to us and described an unusual time when she was speaking to a woman at a dinner party. This woman happened to work pretty high up in a government office job. When Natasha had brought up the case of the family murders which she had read in a book, this woman instantly became frightful, saying that she had been advised at work to keep her mouth shut about such things and to always remember that people were watching. Beyond the horrors and mystery of the murders themselves, the fear that some of the people still feel is perhaps the most interesting aspect of this case. Just trying to imagine such a scenario in your hometown or city, of a series of brutal murders that strike fear across the community. This is followed by the whispered rumors that there is a secret group of powerful men behind it all. These family members could supposedly be your doctor, your lawyer, a neighbor, Hell, even your boss. Just what are you to do when the media suggests that the police almost know for certain who committed these crimes, but still can't touch them? That these people are being shielded by members of society who hold themselves above the law? As much as I love digging into cases like this, I would most likely be keeping my thoughts and opinions to myself. As that woman in a dinner party mentioned, the family could always be watching you. So as for some final thoughts about this case, after spending the past several days studying and researching further into this case, I kept trying to answer the question of who is behind all of this. Was this the work of a secret group of high-profile members of society brought together by the same violent, sadistic urges? Or is it more simple, the work of a lone serial killer who managed to coerce several of his close associates into helping him find his victims? letting them share in the torture and abuse as payment. I still can't say for certain if I believe this so-called family ever existed. To me, I would think that, after decades and decades, that the police would have been able to find something that would link these suspected people into these crimes. But to this day, there is still no evidence that the family ever actually existed at all. The concept has always been more of a speculation of the police and the media press. Now, I just don't see how the police could supposedly be investigating over a dozen highly probable suspects and finding just nothing, if they actually had something to do with the murders. The police themselves have said in recent years that they doubt the family even existed, and if it did, then there is no way that the members involved are still bound together after all these years. Honestly, I think the concept of the family may be merely a conspiracy theory rather than reality. This twisted tale of a secret group of people so powerful that they can get away with anything they want and be untouched by the police is nearly inconceivable to me. It almost sounds more like the plot of like a crime show series or an arc to a superhero story. I just don't see how there was a realistic way that there was a group of powerful establishment figures that could obstruct the investigation into five murder cases while keeping their identities a secret. Though perhaps I just find this idea so dark and depressing that I simply refuse to believe that such an evil organization could function in society. I will say this, that I do not think that Bevan von Einem was working alone. While no one else has ever been fully implicated in these crimes, from all the witness accounts and just from the logistics of the crimes, I can see how Bevan was more than likely had a handful of like-minded men helping him out at different stages of these crimes. It seems common sense that he must have had some kind of accomplices or partners in crime, at the least, who were helping him kidnap these young men for his own sick fantasies. Likewise, though there was not enough evidence to convict him, I also believe that Devin had his hands in more than just one of the deaths of these young men. What I can not say for certain is whether he was the lone killer, or if one or more of his partners took it upon themselves to kill some of the other teenagers. However, if at the end of it all, it turns out that Bevan von Einem really was solely responsible for the murders of all five of these men, I would not be too surprised. I truly believe that this man was evil enough to take these lives without it bothering him one bit. Even after reading up on all these sudden abductions of the brutal murders and even the dark conspiracy of an all-powerful, sadistic group of murderers, what bothers me the most to think about this case is that Perhaps there are more than just these five young men who are victims to these crimes. Maybe the bodies of more boys are out there, still waiting to be found to this day. Whether the truth will ever come out to finally give the families of these victims justice and closure is still unknown. And perhaps it will always remain yet another mystery that will never be solved. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Strange Matters Podcast. If you would like to contact us to discuss the cases of the family murders further, you can reach us at our email at podcast at gmail.com. If you have any ideas or suggestions for further episodes, feel free to write us those as well. You can also visit our website, strangematterspodcast.com, where you can listen, comment, and download all of our episodes. Strange Matters is a member of the Darkness Collective. And Dark Myths is a group of like-minded podcasts, with genres ranging from mystery and crime and the paranormal to history and fictional shows. So if you are looking for other quality podcasts, check out the whole lineup at darkmyths.org. Finally, if you are listening to us on iTunes and you enjoy the show and want to support us, please leave us a rating and a review. It means a lot to us to read your feedback, and it also helps promote the show, so we can find more listeners. We have been getting a lot of great reviews lately, so thank you for everyone who has done that for us. So until the next episode of the Strange Matters Podcast, take care everyone.